Well, good evening, everyone. It's very good to be with you. Uh, Tim was checking the focus of our study tonight. I said it's on relationships, and he said, so that's how to get out of the friend zone. Um, that will not be our focus tonight. Uh, now, we're in the middle of a short series called A Better Story. I'm getting an awful lot of feedback here, Adam. Um, uh, and the series is based on the audacious claim that the Christian life is the best way to live. That's a really big claim, of course. Uh, but that's what we're going to just lay out for you to see, and then you can form your own judgment. The Bible claims that the most positive, the sanest way to live is to follow God's design plan for human beings. In a society where so many people live chaotic, anxious, or uh, alienated lives, it's surely worth giving Christianity a hearing for 30 minutes. About 20 years ago, I had spent the day in Canary Wharf uh, in the east of London. And I was due uh, to speak somewhere in uh, Hertfordshire the following day. So I completely ignored the advice of my uh, English colleagues, and I decided to get a direct train uh, to my destination using the attractively named Silver Link Metro service to Watford Gap. I left the Docklands uh, with its trendy apartments, its expensively paved walkways, its abstract sculptures, and boarded the Silver Link Metro. The train was unspeakably dirty. The cushions had been ripped off. It was difficult to find a seat not covered in ancient gum. There were 18 stations, I'm not joking, 18 stations on the way to my destination. And all I could see through the grimy windows was this run-down inner city landscape. Even the people around me looked tired and hopeless. Opposite me was a, a frail old East Ender looking like a waxwork figure. Nobody spoke. We just sat in sullen silence, huddled in our own private misery. Every so often someone would get off at a stop then the doors would slide shut, and the rest of us lurched off through graffiti-ridden tunnels. It was a bitterly cold night. I watched the sleet rush past the window and wished that I'd had the foresight to carry an umbrella. The whole experience was like living in a play by Samuel Beckett. And of course, there were no taxis at the station, so the half-mile walk to the hotel was ghastly. And to cheer myself up, I remembered a time when I had not one but four umbrellas over me. Just a few weeks earlier, my wife Ruth and I had enjoyed a holiday in Cyprus. We stayed in this clifftop uh, hotel that overlooked the, that unique blue of the Mediterranean Sea. Ruth loved to lie out in the sun, but I react to sun like a vampire. So each morning I annoyed all the German tourists by arranging four massive sunshades together, uh, creating an oasis of shade in which to read my book. From the sun bed next to me came that well-worn phrase, you're completely nuts, Jim. Now the difference between those two scenes isn't best measured using a thermometer. The big difference between them is relational. On the Silverlink metro train, a group of strangers traveled alone together. On that Cypriot clifftop, a husband and wife enjoyed the blessing of a loving relationship. I don't make any assumptions about your beliefs here tonight, but I know that all of us of different faiths and no faith know that life is meant to be a relational thing. Think of a mother looking down into her baby's eyes or think of a man doubled over in helpless laughter because his best mate has just sliced a, sliced a golf shot uh, out of bounds. I used to love sitting in the airport uh, arrivals lounge watching family reunions take place. Every hug, every shed tear proved the thesis that the best and most important things in life 
are the relationships that we have. We all instinctively know that to be true. And yet so many people today live like those waxwork figures on the silver link metro. We share the same space, we head for the same destination, but we are together alone. The advent of social media has actually increased the loneliness that we feel. We may have thousands of friends on Facebook, or Instagram stories may generate hundreds of likes, but increasingly few of us enjoy deep and abiding friendships. Now I consider the impact of Twitter on our social lives. We have lost the ability to agree to disagree. So Twitter has become a space for angry, hate-filled discourse. Anyone who disagrees with the mob gets lynched. So society is quickly fragmenting into a set of cultural ghettos. Over time, we only interact with people who reinforce our own views, and so social cohesion is lost. Immediately after the 2016 referendum on Britain's exit from the European Union, the BBC interviewed a student in London, and she was in tears. 16.1 million people like her had voted to remain, but 17.4 million had voted to leave. Who are these people, she asked. Where did they come from? I've never met any of them. In Northern Ireland, we have lived with that horrible division since 1921. Two communities have lived separate lives. I remember one of my work colleagues admitting to me that he had never met a Protestant until he was 19. So we can all agree on this curious feature of life. Instinctively, we know that relationships are the most precious and valuable thing in life. And yet we must admit that it rarely works out like that in practice. As individuals, we battle with loneliness. Yes, we play the game of the superficial happiness in order to impress our 2,000 followers on, on social media, but we mourn the lack of authentic, abiding friendships. Many people live within the wreckage of damaged relationships. Divorce or bitter family disputes can destroy our most intimate relationships. And when we pan the camera back so that we see society as a whole, we can see that same problem, fragmentation, cultural ghettos, a lack of social cohesion. And it's in that context that we now turn to tonight's topic. What is the Christian answer to healthy relationships? Has the Bible anything valuable to say about that most important aspect of the human condition? In this talk, I'm going to follow the same structure I did last, as I, I had last week. First, I'm going to set out the big idea, Christianity's big idea, its big principle that govern relationships. And then we'll consider three areas of life in which that principle can operate, at the level of society, at the level of home life, and then at the level of individual living. So we're going to get underway by reading from God's Word and Matthew chapter 22. Pew Bible, page 828. Matthew chapter 22, and we'll read 34 through 40. Matthew 22 and verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There are lots of commands about how to live to be found in the Bible. 
the religious Pharisees we just read about added thousands more of their own. But in this passage, our Lord pulls out the great underlying principle that sums up the Christian approach to relationships, the principle called love. Uh, we encounter love in its vertical and in its horizontal dimensions. We are to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, the word love is a potential pitfall for any preacher because the term is thrown about in our society without any clarity about what we mean by it. It reduces to a lovely slogan. I mean, it could well be found on a placard carried by an earnest vegan protesting against the proroguing of Parliament. Love, not hate. So if I'm to say anything useful about the Bible's view of relationships, we'll need to harden up our definition of love a little. And I'm going to do that by making two clarifying points about biblical love. So let's begin by imagining that Christ didn't tell us to love our neighbors. Let's imagine he told us to tolerate our neighbors. That is the gospel preached by our culture. Tolerate others. But if you think about it, tolerance is a pretty shriveled little virtue. It's really just a euphemism for callous indifference. If I tolerate you, I just shrug my shoulders and let you get on with messing up your life. Christ never told us to tolerate anyone. He told us to love people. And if you love people, you will tell them the truth. As Ephesians commands us, speak the truth in love. But let's take an issue like transgenderism. In a society where everyone just shrugs their shoulders and lets their neighbor make disastrous choices, have you ever considered that it might be the passionate evangelical who is the only person in the room who cares enough to speak into the life of someone in the transgender community? Maybe they aren't intolerant bigots trying to win a culture war. Maybe they care about a lost soul trapped in a dehumanizing worldview. They care enough to offer them truth and hope. So that's the first clarifying point. Love is inextricably linked with truth. It's not a shrug of the shoulders. It is a desire to bring truth uh, into people's lives. Love rejoices with the truth, says the Bible. So maybe now you can see why the Bible's command to love our neighbor is better than the callous indifference of someone who merely tolerates them. Now, the second clarifying point uh, for it, I invite you to consider for a moment one of the most common slogans used by the LGBT community. Love is love. I, I once gave a talk, um, a public talk, on the Bible's approach to sexuality and gender, and one member of the audience was a leading figure in Queen's uh, LGBT community, and he had come to check up that I wasn't some hate-filled homophobe. And he told me afterwards that he felt the love, which was nice. Uh, and we had a really friendly and helpful conversation about our different worldviews. Very helpful conversation. And in the course of it, he uttered that famous phrase, love is love. Well, I said, that is either a meaningless tautology or else you're saying that all love is sexual love. But no one believes that all love is sexual love. I said, you love your grandmother, you love your dog, and I have no intention of finishing this sentence. Neither of us believes that all love should be sexually expressed. You see, love expresses itself in distinct ways. It has structure, if you like. There is the affection we feel for an old family pet. There's the deep and abiding friendship that's built over years between two men or two women. There's the unique romantic love that blooms within the institution of marriage. And there's the altruistic sacrificial love 
of God for us, the thing called agape love. So love comes to us in a number of distinct forms. Affection, friendship, romantic love, and agape love. Each element is absolutely delightful, but their distinctiveness is part of their beauty. I'm sure you can all remember your last Christmas meal. Yeah? Good. <laughs> it's a special moment, isn't it? When you lift your knife and fork, you get ready to confront a plate full of roast potatoes and those little sausages wrapped in bacon, carrots, turkey breast, cranberry sauce, and gravy. Each element of the meal is delightful. Each brings a distinctive quality to the overall experience. Now, I imagine you would not be well pleased with me if I lifted your plate from the table, walked into the kitchen, and tipped the contents of your plate into a blender. I then return to the table, give you a tall glass full of brown goo, and say, enjoy your meal. I expect you might pour the brown goo over my head and protest. Homogenizing the meal destroys it. Yes, it's all just food, but we like the combination of textures. We like the way the sharpness of the cranberry counterbalances the comforting sweetness of the turkey. Pouring the whole thing into a blender means that the essence of the meal has been lost. Its distinctiveness is an essential quality. And so when its structure is lost, the meal is lost and only an unappetizing goo remains. And the same principle applies to love. Love is not a simple thing. I think I just invented the title of a pop song there. Anyway, <laughs> love is not a simple thing. It is a nuanced, multidimensional... I've moved away from the pop song here. It's a nuanced, multidimensional quality that expresses itself in distinctive forms. Affection, friendship, romantic love, and agape love. Yes, those things are all love, but part of the appeal of love is that it comes to us in different forms. So when the Bible says that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, it isn't mounting some pious platitude. In the Bible, first of all, as we just learned, love is inextricably linked with truth, and secondly, its distinctives should never be blurred. So given what I have just said, we should now expect to run into some uncomfortable countercultural ideas when we apply biblical love to our lives and society at home and in daily life. So let's now do that uh, as we turn again to the Scriptures, this time to Acts chapter 9. going to read Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 10. Let me just, uh, before we read, give you a bit of uh, context here. Uh, the man we know as the Apostle Paul uh, had just converted, has just converted to Christianity. Uh, before his conversion, Paul was known as Saul of Tarsus, and in those days, Saul hounded the Christian church uh, like a cruel wolf. Uh, he was a highly educated man who possessed one of the greatest minds, if not the greatest mind in human history. But what he was uh, on this day, we would call a religious fanatic. Some of the language that Luke uses to describe Saul is incredibly strong. He uses words which normally refer to wild boars who rampage through uh, farmed land. Luke describes Saul as mauling the Christians in Jerusalem. But miraculously, this terrible foe of the Christian church gets saved. So let's now read from Acts 9 and verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, 
And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias the partisan entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Now the story of Ananias is very easy to understand. He was told to go to a particular street in Damascus. You can still walk it today, incidentally. It's the main east-west thoroughfare. It has an Arab name now today, but the street remains. And the Lord asks Ananias to go to a house on that street and to welcome the converted man, Saul, into the Christian church. If there was ever an illustration of what sociologists call an encounter with the other, then this is it. Postmodernism has taught us to view society as a set of minority groups who experience oppression. They are victims of oppression. And the philosophies behind the progressive left have reduced society to a bitter power struggle, a reinvention of Karl Marx's uh, class struggle. And Paul must surely have been regarded by the early church as its hated oppressor. His name would have triggered feelings of terror and injustice in the believer's hearts. And the news that Saul was heading for Damascus would have generated something like panic. Mothers would have hugged their children tightly. Fervent prayers meetings would have been held. Men would have pleaded for God to strike this evil man down. But now consider the reaction uh, to the early believers' news that Saul had been struck blind, that he had, had been led into the city like a blind child. I wonder how we would have reacted to that. Since I, I have been a ch since I was a child, I've always imagined Ananias to be this slightly forgetful, gentle old professor. I, I have no scriptural basis for that. It just seems to be that's what he's like. But what we do know is he was a man who really knew God very well. And here in this story, we come to one of the greatest moments of grace in all of Scripture. The Lord had commanded Ananias to place his hands on Saul to welcome him into the Christian church. I take it it was Ananias who baptized Paul, probably made him his first meal that Paul had eaten in three days. But the moment of grace is this. So, uh, Ananias went further than the divine command. Yes, he reached out and touched his former enemy gently on the head. That was the first human contact Saul had known for days, perhaps years. And then came those two astonishing words of grace. Brother Saul. Not a trace of bitterness. Ananias reached out his hand to reassure his former enemy that he was now in the family of God. What a story for a culture like ours. Maybe I'm talking to someone from a minority ethnic group right now. Perhaps you've absorbed the teachings of post-colonialism and have started to resent bitterly the thing which the progressive left calls white privilege. 
Now, please don't think I am dismissing the real injustices that minority groups have experienced for centuries. I am most certainly not doing that. My point is this. The politics of identity will trap you for the rest of your life in a bitter power struggle. Because in that world, the only thing there is is power. So before you start to work through social justice issues, think deeply about the unique contribution which Christianity makes to the zero-sum game of identity politics. The thing called grace. You can forgive your oppressor. And that healing flow of forgiveness and grace will refresh and enliven your soul. It will nourish and develop deep securities within your personality so that you can accept the injustices of life, even the stupid, unthinking attitudes of your white friends. Love them enough, and you can pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do that, and you will inject grace into the zero-sum game of competing rights. And grace changes the world. Think of the chaos in Parliament, how that could be calmed if members of Parliament all asked themselves, what if I showed some grace here? We live in a culture that reduces society to a zero-sum game of competing rights. But the better story, the Bible's answer to social tensions, is the story of grace. The story of the Good Samaritan is a better story than the story told by neo-Marxism. Now, I hesitate before giving you a more local example, because as a church, we do not become embroiled in politics. I'm simply giving a personal opinion here, so that even if you disagree with me, you can better understand how to apply these biblical principles for yourself. If it's important for half the population to have road signs in Irish as well as in English, why shouldn't I just shrug my shoulders and say, if it's important for you, then it's important for all of us? I might be particularly inclined to show grace like that if by so doing I can avoid the, avoid the imposition of terrible abortion laws on the country. And I suggest that anyone who genuinely fears God will make that choice. Now, that was just a personal observation. Even if you argue that I've portrayed that example unfairly, I hope it will help you to think about other times when we can show grace to each other at the level of society. The uncomfortable truth we've learned here is to inject grace into the zero-sum game of competing rights. Let's move on to the second uh, uncomfortable application of the Bible's great principle of love. And uh, I mentioned earlier that love has its distinctives. And one unique type of love is the romantic or the erotic love shared between husband and wife in marriage. There is an entire book of the Bible dedicated to the love between the husband and wife. It's called the Song of Songs, and it's a cycle of love poems, uh, and a set of impressionistic uh, uh, pictures of married life uh, over time, I think. You may have seen quotes from this ancient song on Hallmark cards, Oh, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. That's a famous line. I remember getting a card from my wife which quoted another, not your nuts, Another quoted a card from my wife which quoted, I have found the one my soul loves. And I mention that to counter the story told today that marriage was historically a property transaction. That was never God's intention. Anyway, near the end of the song, we read these words. 
Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. And that verse is really important because it reminds us that biblical love is a blend of love and law. Biblical marriage, I beg your pardon, is a blend of love and law. One man and one woman enter a lifelong covenant. In the language of the Song of Songs, they set a seal on their relationship. There is something, says the Bible, about the nature of romantic love that desires the stability and enduring quality of a covenant. When a man and woman enter the institution of marriage, they enter into a secure space. The Song of Songs likens it to a private garden that no one else should invade. In that secure space, husband and wife can achieve the honesty and commitment needed for true intimacy to flourish. Remember, love is more than feelings. Feelings are fragile things. Love is a commitment to willing the good of the other. So the boundaries of marriage are the very things which give the couple the freedom to forsake all others and to build this unique thing, the thing called the husband-wife relationship. In an earlier part of the Song of Songs, the wife says that living with her husband is like sitting under an apricot tree. She enjoys sitting in the shade that it provides. I used to quote that verse to Ruth whenever I was building my sunshade edifice in Cyprus, and she told me that I was insane. But anyway, the verse reminds us that it is a, it's a beautiful picture of marriage, actually, isn't it? One partner, partner sitting under the shade of an apricot tree, shielded by the other from the blinding heat of the sun. This type of love is private and intimate. The Song of Songs has a lot to say about sexual love. The Bible is completely unembarrassed by sex, saying it is a good gift from a good God. But it teaches that sexual love should always be framed within the covenant of marriage. Just think of the sexual chaos found in our society. Divorce, sexual assault, the emotional hurt caused by one-night stands, the meaningless transactional sex that reduces it to a bodily function like urination. In contrast, the biblical view of erotic love is a better story. Christians aren't repressed Victorian spinters who shriek in horror every time the word sex is mentioned. We're just convinced that the Bible story of romantic love that desires the enduring security of a covenant is a better story. That's the first uncomfortable truth we, learned about, we learn about romantic relationships. Erotic love should be confined to marriage. But there's a second lesson to learn here in this department of life. In John chapter 4, the Lord Jesus encounters a woman who has given up on the biblical idea of marriage. She had used the lax divorce laws of the day to marry five times, and when we meet her, she's simply living with her partner. She has rejected the biblical story of erotic love. In that sense, she is a very modern figure. And interestingly, when we meet her, she is walking out in the fierce heat of the noonday sun. Some might have seen her as an empowered, modern woman, someone who needed no shade to protect her. But Christ saw beneath that facade and saw a woman who was so desperate for love that she had turned her erotic relationships into an ultimate thing. And how modern is that? Our society regards sex as an ultimate thing. For many, it is the regulating principle that governs their life and it ends up like an unquenchable thirst. And the Bible takes a different view. Yes, marital sex is a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. We won't find the ultimate meaning and security we desire in human relationships, even the most intimate ones. So perhaps I'm talking to someone just now, 
and you have thrown yourself into the sexually chaotic scenes offered by this society because you are desperate for love. In John 4, the Lord Jesus says to the woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The desire to be loved is not a wrong thing. It's a very natural part of the human condition. But don't go looking for love in the wrong way. Human relationships are good and healthy, but they on their own can't deliver ultimate meaning and security and acceptance. It takes the outpouring of God's love into your heart to give you those things. And once you know that you are loved by God, then the disastrous path to finding love and sexual chaos can be left behind. So the second lesson we learn from the Bible's view of romantic love is that romantic relationships are a good thing, but not an ultimate thing. Never look for ultimate meaning or satisfaction in human relationships of any kind. Now, maybe you don't quite know how that would feel to find ultimate satisfaction and meaning in a relationship with God. Well, if that's the case, can I, I'm going to suggest a really practical thing. I'm going to suggest that before you go to sleep tonight, I want you to, if you don't have a Bible, uh, get out your phone and look up Psalm 121. Very easy number to remember, Psalm 121. And read over it. And try to imagine what it must feel like to know God as the ancient pilgrims who sang that psalm knew him. They used to sing it when they were on their journey. They used to sing it just before they went to sleep, knowing that they could trust their God to keep them secure. And the middle of that poem has these words. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Now, it's possible that a good number of you are feeling a bit left out because you're not married. Maybe you're single or widowed. Or perhaps you're a Christian who experiences same-sex attraction. And while you accept everything I've just said about biblical marriage, you feel excluded from a crucial part of being human. Being single can be tough. At the end of a church meeting or a social night out with friends, a single person gives a cheery wave goodbye and drives home to an empty house where maybe no welcoming light. Sometimes they quietly make themselves a cup of tea and wonder how their life might have gone if they had married. So how can I possibly say that the Christian view of relationships is the best way to live? How can I say that to single people here tonight? Well, so far in this talk, I have left out the most important and in practical terms, the best part of the Christian story on relationships. I'm talking about the thing called church. God invented the Christian church so that even if you live a life which doesn't include physical intimacy enjoyed by a married couple, you can still live a radiant life overflowing with love. The Christian church was designed to help you forge a web of deep, abiding friendships, a set of loving relationships. Think about the number of times Paul describes the church as family. His writings reveal to us that we're all baptized in the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. So when he calls us brothers and sisters, he isn't just using a nice metaphor. When John calls us children of God, he isn't just using another nice metaphor. 
That is what we are. We are bound together by something stronger and more lasting and real than DNA. So you can live in the chaotic mess of your church family's joys and sorrows, mourning with those who mourn, laughing with those who are happy. If I understand the end of Romans correctly, the Apostle Paul says that the wife of Simon of Cyrene, the African man who carried the Lord's cross, that his wife was like a mother to him. And he says elsewhere that Timothy, the uncircumcised son of a heathen Greek, was his son in the faith. So the Apostle Paul had a black spiritual mother and a Greek-speaking son. That is the genius of the Christian church. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul talks of widows who have served the church faithfully for years. He regards them as valuable and worthy of honor, and that is so countercultural in a society which regards women like that as invisible. So anyone, maybe particularly those who are single, can find in the Christian church a home, a family which gives them the dignity and the sense of purpose that comes from being needed. Now, there is practically, there is a need for us as a church to think deeply about how to help people weave those relationships into their lives. There is a worrying trend among young, well, there are many worrying trends among young adults, but this one, uh, where they live increasingly private lives. I think in the long term, that will threaten the very concept of having a church. So we need to relearn the old disciplines of hospitality. I am an inept widower. I, I, I can use a microwave if I follow the instructions, and that's it. But I sometimes try to cook a meal for people. <laughs> They're very gracious. Uh, take the next day off work. <laughs> but those of you who are competent in these things, you see, it's not the same to take people out for a meal in a restaurant. It's just there's something really profound about opening your home to other people. So we need to relearn these old habits of being hospitable. They're particularly important quality for elders to have, Titus would say. And then single people, when you are invited, make the effort to say yes. Even if it is a bit embarrassing and they say that old thing, oh, you sit at the head of the table and all that stuff. Because it will protect you from falling into isolated selfishness. So the church needs to put in work to build a real spiritual family. And it's never done from people up here. Remember, that's what the church was designed to do, to help each of us forge a web of loving relationships. So we're done. In this talk, I've argued that the Bible's big idea about healthy relationships is based on love. But its definition of love is not some soupy, vague form of sentimentality. Love in the Bible is inextricably linked with truth, and its distinctives should never be homogenized. A love like that leads us to three uncomfortable countercultural ideas about relationships. At the level of society, we are called to inject grace into the zero-sum game of competing rights. When it comes to marriage, sexual intimacy should be confined to the covenant of marriage. That's the only way to escape the sexual chaos of this society. And although romantic relationships are a good thing, they should never become an ultimate thing. And lastly, if we want to develop healthy relationships in our daily lives, the astonishing gift God has given us to do that in a fallen world is the Christian church. The church is designed to help us forge a web of deep and abiding relationships. Accept those three truths, 
and you can leave the desolate train journey to oblivion, the story of people traveling together alone. Instead, join a joyful community that has the Lord as our shade, the shade at our right hand. And that sounds to me like a better story.